0: Uh, before I forget to tell you, uh, tonight for people in their 30s and 40s, there's a bonfire out at my house tonight. Lori and I are having burgers on the grill at about 6 o'clock this evening. I, I think there's details in the bulletin with our address in there. So if you're in your 30s and 40s, you feel like you want to get connected with people, you haven't been meeting people here in the church, that's a great way for you to get connected. So we're going to... Bring a dish. My, the cook says bring a dish. Okay. Bring, bring something to eat or dessert or something like that to share. All right. Um, Let me tell you about what you're in store for. In the baptism service that you're going to see in a few minutes, there's people getting baptized who came to the 9 o'clock service that didn't know they were going to be getting baptized today. Huh. Wonder what you're in store for. There are people who were baptized in the last service who came to Jesus Christ last night. Are pretty cool. Um, we've been praying through this 40-day adventure for God to show himself powerful, right? We've been praying that God would bring people into the kingdom. There's people who are in the kingdom that two weeks ago didn't know they were going to be believers, who a week ago, who 24 hours ago didn't know. God keeps drawing people to himself. So you're experiencing the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit upon this place, and it's a remarkable thing to be part of. Let me just remind you before we go into prayer, um, the three things that we've been talking about here specifically, you'll see them on the screen, that when we're praying, we're seeking God's will, right? It's not about getting Mark's will done in heaven. It's not about getting your will done in heaven. Jesus said, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's about getting God's will done on earth. That's our objective. So that leads us to priority. And our priority is is that we would put God first in every single decision that we make. Regardless of if it's as big as a facility for this church or something as small as what kind of a car we should be buying. You'll see in your notes this morning, if you grab the bulletin, the seven things that we're praying about. From facility to finances and about God making us bold as a church. Those seven specific things. The the priority leads us, though, to our purpose. And that's where this morning's message comes into play before we get into baptism. That we would take advantage of the opportunities that God brings our way. Our God is a God of very deliberate action and very specific action. And He's the God of detail. So that tells me that when we pray specifically, God answers specifically. And when He brings opportunities your way, you have a responsibility to do something with those opportunities. You'll see that fleshed out this morning in John chapter 3. It's where I'm going to invite you to turn to if you would do that. You make your way to John chapter 3, and then we'll get into the text. I'm going to pray with you, Co. So would you go ahead and bow your head with me? God, I thank you for the way that you're evidencing yourself here. For some people, it, it's a complete surprise. For others, they've been waiting for an opportunity like this. But Father, one thing we know for sure, you like to put your glory on display, and you like to show your power, and we're experiencing that in the life of this church. You're growing us in ways that we never anticipated, and yet you're faithful and consistent to reveal yourself through your word. So we come before you as a group of people this morning who hold your word in our hand. And we do not take that lightly. Father, for us it would just be black ink on white paper were it not for the activity of your Holy Spirit who brings life. And you said that your word is alive and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So Father, we would ask that you would use the surgeon's scalpel this morning and you would do a work on our heart. Perhaps even to the surprise of some of us. Perhaps even an encounter that we didn't see coming. God, do what only you can do. We ask that your Holy Spirit would have complete authority and reign over these words and over this auditorium and we invite this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been at New Hope for any period of time, you're very familiar with this quote that I'm going to put on the screen, and if you're new here, I'm going to give you a minute to process it. Perhaps it's been a little while since you've seen it, but it says this, what you believe about God determines what you will do next. Take a minute just to digest that. What you believe about God determines what you will do next, especially when it comes to seizing opportunities. Whether you agree with that statement or you disagree, I'm just going to ask you to hear me out. How I view God determines the actions that I take throughout the course of my day. Let's take it in the very most basic form. How I view God determines how I pray, whether or not I believe that He's going to intervene in my life. It determines how I pray. How I view God determines how I carry out conversations. It I'm just very careful about the things I say, the things that I engage myself in based on how I view God. Same would be true for you. How I view God determines how or if I'm even going to respond to opportunities. And here's a big one. How I view God determines how I view myself. Maybe you've never thought about that before because specifically what I believe that he says about me. Let me flesh that out for you because there's a little bit of a tension with that statement. Here's the question for you to ponder as we work through this text. Are you personally in a place where you're going to believe the things that man says about you or what God says about you? Here's, let me help you to understand that. Let me put on the screen Romans 6.13. We're told that as we present ourselves before God, We're to present ourselves as those who are alive, redeemed. Are you the redeemed of the Lord? Then you come before God as one who says, Father, I am your child. I've been redeemed. I've been made alive. See how you view God determines what you're going to do next. Let's take it a step further. Second Corinthians five seventeen, it says this is anyone if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Some of your Bibles might say a new creation. It says this also, the old things passed away, behold, the new things have come. That means if you're a new believer or if you're an old believer, the old things that you were part of before you knew Jesus Christ, those are gone. All that sin that counted against you, he took it away. See, it's really crucial that we have a proper biblical understanding of who God is and who we are in him. Because what I believe about God really does determine what I do. Here's the most basic description I can give you. It has to do when Jesus was crucified. Look at this verse on the screen. 1 Corinthians 2.7. It says this, If they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the Jews had a view of God that they thought they knew God, and how they viewed God determined what they did. And their view of God was that God would never come to earth and die for the whole world. This couldn't be God. Let's kill him. How they viewed God determined what they did next. And Paul said if they knew, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. So what you believe about God determines what you do next. Let's take that into John chapter 3. I know it's a very, very familiar passage to many of you if you grew up in church, but I'm going to help you look at it through a new set of lenses this morning. We've got a man here, his name is Nicodemus, who believes that he knows God. He believes that he understands God. He thinks he knows how God functions until he has a God encounter, and his view of God is about to change. John 3.1 says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is my image. I'm thinking he's coming to the door. Hey, is Jesus in there? It's a nighttime meeting. He comes to Jesus' house, wherever Jesus is staying at. And we don't know the setting entirely, but it was very common in this day and age in the first century for people to go up on the rooftop, especially in the heat of the day. So this is evening time. Maybe they're trying to catch a breeze, but whatever the setting, we know that they sit down and talk, and Jesus has this conversation with a Pharisee. So we're told he's not only a Pharisee, we're told that he's a ruler. Now this one, because he's a ruler, means that he's ascended to the Supreme Court. See, Pharisees were attorneys. And this particular attorney is so good at what he does, he's made it onto the Supreme Court. It's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 council members. The 71 council members were chosen from among 6,000 Pharisees. In the first century, there were 6,000 Pharisees in Israel. So this guy is really good. He's not just a Pharisee. He's a ruler who's made it onto the Supreme Court. And as you're going to see in verse 10, He's also a teacher of Israel. So this guy knows God's Word. He knows the law. He's connected with the who's who. He's a mover and shaker. And he knows God, he thinks. Now this tells me because he's an attorney, he's very research-oriented. He's a person who likes to investigate. And he's investigated Jesus We're probably thinking he's around 30 years of age, probably a little bit older than that. He's an elder of Israel. Doesn't mean he's aged, but he's at least in his 30s. And we see in verse 1 that he comes by night, and he calls Jesus Rabbi. That means he's putting Jesus on the same playing field as himself. Rabbi was a a title of prestige. And this is a man who's a member of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. So he's prestigious. He's using a prestigious title of Jesus and he's treating him as an equal, but do you notice he doesn't ask a question? He just makes a statement. He's attracted to Jesus because of the miracles, and he wants to know more. And I think he's really sincere. Deep in his heart, I think he's really sincere. But here's the setting. He's an investigator. He's a teacher of the law. He's an attorney, so he's heard Jesus teach. And he knows that he's not holding the crowd's attention like Jesus is, He can't do the things that Jesus is doing. He knows that people are paying attention to Jesus, and he's hearing answers to questions that have plagued him. And so he's willing to come to Jesus by night. In verse 2, he calls Jesus rabbi, and then he says this, I know that you're from God because you're doing these signs. Now, Jesus doesn't take his statement at face value because they're solely based on signs. He doesn't really understand who Jesus is. So instead of affirming the statement, he's going to expand his view of God. He's going to take him to a higher level. You know what that tells me? When you're in the midst of conversations with people in your world and they think they know God and they talk like they know God, don't be afraid to push back a little bit just to make sure you're speaking the same language. Because many times you'll engage with conversation with people at school or in the workplace or out in the street in your neighborhood and they'll start using God talk Make sure that you're really using the same language and that you're really talking about who God is. And Jesus does that exact same thing. So let's see what he does in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you notice that Jesus has answered a question Nicodemus never asked? It's like coming up to somebody and saying, where'd you get that car? And then you begin talking about your house. They're like on two different subjects here. Well, what's going on? Well, Nicodemus never asked this question. Jesus knows he has a fascination with the superhuman, but he goes straight to the real issue, the transformation by new birth. When you see in your Bible the phrase, truly, truly, that's the phrase, and it's in your notes this morning in your bulletin. It's the phrase, amen, amen, where we get the word amen from. It means what is about to follow is authentic. It's true. The statement that's made is real. And in this case, Jesus' statement truly, truly is followed by saying, there is no entrance into God's kingdom except on one condition. And the condition is in verse 3, that you're born again. We're going to come in and drill into that. What does born again really mean? And we're not talking about taking an extra sketch and tipping an extra sketch upside down and shaking it to get a brand new screen. It's not that kind of thing. We're talking about something that is brand new, completely from God, an action of God. Look at this example from 1 Peter 1.3. It says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now before we get into born again, let's understand kingdom of God. Jesus has just said to a Jew, you're not in the kingdom. Now for a Jew who's a Pharisee, who's a member of the Supreme Court, they believed by birth they get into the kingdom of God. They're the descendants of Abraham. And observing the law and the rituals gain them entrance. Jesus' statement says, no matter how religious you are, no matter how perfectly you hold the law, you don't enter the kingdom without personally experiencing something first called the regeneration. And the implications are staggering. Not just for this guy. Because I guarantee you, you're meeting people every day of your life who think that they're good enough. They've done all the right things. They've dotted all the I's. They've crossed all the T's. They've given enough away money to the people on the street corner. They've helped the elderly lady in their neighborhood. God's going to really like them because they're doing everything just right. That's the mindset that Nicodemus has. He's joined the Pharisees. He's made it to the Supreme Court. And Jesus is saying, none of that's going to do it. You've got to abandon the entire system, Nicodemus. You've placed all your hope in. Ultimately, what Jesus is saying here is your human effort is completely powerless. What a blow. Can you imagine if you've worked your entire life to get yourself to this elevated status? You've made all the sacrificial offerings. You've gone to the temple constantly. And Jesus is saying, you got no part in the kingdom. You're a Pharisee, but that's no advantage. Ultimately, here's the statement, Mark's paraphrase. The most religious man in all of Israel has just been told, you're not going to heaven. You're not getting in. Except on one condition. So at this point, I'm thinking all the lights on the dash are going off. And Nicodemus responds in verse 4. You see him say this. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now remember, he came looking to understand miracles. He's trying to process who Jesus is. This is like taking a high school biology student and setting them down with Albert Einstein to have him explain the theory of relativity. This is just—it just doesn't match. You've got the master sitting there trying to explain how these things work. Now understand, this man is highly educated, so he's not misinterpreting Jesus. He's he's not misinterpreting Jesus' words. His reply is in context. He says, how do I start all over? How do I go all the way back to the beginning? How is that possible? He certainly cannot grasp the concept. This is a statement of confusion. What you see going on here is this man is marveling at the magnitude of the statement. Jesus You're asking for something that is humanly impossible. Exactly. Exactly. It is humanly impossible. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to notice something very subtle in this passage. Do you notice that Jesus is not minimizing the argument in order to win Nicodemus? As a matter of fact, he's presenting him with a really difficult challenge. He's expecting him to come up to an intellectual level to understand this. So in your notes this morning, you see this word palingenesia, and it's on the screen as well. Palingenesia is the actual Greek phrase that Jesus is using when he says born again. And it's a compound word. Palen means from above, something that came from heaven, something from above. And genesia, like the word genesis, means a birth, or in spiritual terms, a rebirth, spiritual renovation. So palingenesia is receiving New life from above. Here's how it's used in the Bible, Titus 3.5. It says this, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, have you experienced that? If you're a believer in Jesus, you better say yes, because that's true of you. This washing that we're talking about here, it is not related to baptism that you're going to see in just a moment. This is talking about something that completely comes from God and you can't be dependent on anything else outside of Him. So we're not talking about the old nature altered. You're going to fix the old things in your life. We're talking about something that is new birth, completely from above. So Jesus recognizes He needs to drill down a little deeper with this guy and in verse 5, that's what He does. Go with me to verse 5 on the screen. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now it's about to get a little heated in here, so I'm going to ask somebody to turn the fans on a little bit, okay? Just grab those fan switches over there and turn them on low. You're going to feel the intensity, all right? Jesus is speaking here very specifically. Unless you're born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter into heaven. You hear me on that, church? We're talking about eternal things here. We're talking about your own personal destiny. What is in store for you after death? Jesus has just said, unless you're born of the water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So when he says born of the water, that's parallel to born again. Now, I know that Jesus is not talking about baptism here. Many people, when they read that verse and they look at it, they think, well, he's talking about baptism. Jesus is not talking about baptism. It's not something that you can do to earn your salvation. You can't earn it. Water baptism that you're about to watch here is in obedience, right, church? It's obedience to what Jesus told us to do. It doesn't give us our salvation. It doesn't earn us a place in heaven. If it did, that would be works-based. So we know that water baptism is obedience. It's not a requirement for salvation. Otherwise, none of the Old Testament saints would be saved, right? Because baptism wasn't available to them. What about the thief on the cross? Jesus is hanging on the cross. The thief next to him and says, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus turns to him and says, I promise you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Do they take him off the cross and baptize him and put him back on the cross? I'm just saying, okay? You can't earn salvation through baptism. It's something that God does and God alone. So let's explore this because Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand this. It must be something with which he's familiar. He's an Old Testament teacher, he's got God's word from the Old Testament. So this image is coming from the Old Testament. This imagery of water and the Spirit speaks of spiritual renewal, a cleansing that only God can do. Here's how I can give you an example of it. It comes from the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel, It's on the screen, Ezekiel 36, 24. Mind you, this takes place at a time when Israel had been in rebellion to God. They were living distant from God. They had been worshiping idols, so God allowed them to be hauled away to Babylon they're living in captivity and God said I'm going to woo you I'm going to draw you back to myself and I'm going to cleanse your heart look with me Ezekiel 36:24 God speaking for I will take you from the nations gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols This is a passage that Nicodemus is very familiar with. He knows the Old Testament. He teaches the Old Testament. So regeneration is Old Testament stuff. And against the Old Testament backdrop, Jesus' point is unmistakable. Without spiritual washing, there's no access to God. And so Nicodemus is struggling to put this together because contrary to everything he's thought his entire life, if I pray just the right way, if I got baptized as a baby, if I was raised in a Christian family, if I'm an American, if I show up for church on Christmas and Easter, I'm good. Jesus is saying that's not what does it. And Nicodemus is a prime example of that. So look at the shock on his face because Jesus speaks to it. Verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you think that Nicodemus is shocked at this point? I'm thinking it's all over his face because Jesus uses the word thumazo. He says, Nicodemus, do not be thumadzo. It means to be astonished. He's hearing something he's never heard before. Jesus uses a very strong term when he uses the word must. If you don't mind circling a word in your Bible, I would circle the word must. You'll see it on the screen in the example of it. It's a Greek word, and it literally means necessary, something that is binding. Jesus used this exact same word again in verse 14 when he said, it is necessary that the Son of Man be lifted up. This word means there's no other option. It must happen. You have to do it. So when he uses this illustration, the wind blows where it wishes, and you can see the effect of it, we can identify with that in 2013. We see the activity of the wind. We don't understand it. Matter of fact, we don't even understand the source of it fully, but we can certainly see the effects of it, just like you can see the effects of a transformed life. I mean, who else would climb into a tank of water in front of hundreds of people and get their shirts wet and allow their clothes to stick to their body and ladies who are going to let their hair get completely washed out and all their makeup's going to run unless their life was completely transformed and they're willing to say, I belong to Jesus and I don't care what the crowd thinks. I'm here to say, I'm being baptized because Jesus told me to be baptized. That's what you're watching. That's what Jesus is talking about. You can't understand the Holy Spirit, but it transforms you. You can see the effect and transforms life. Now you're watching a man here in verse 9 who is really, really struggling. Verse 9 says this, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? See, he's hanging on to preconceived ideas of religion. He does not grasp salvation by grace and grace alone. And this is what Jesus is offering. So Jesus responds, verse 10 Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, you're the professor who sits down with the students, and you're teaching them my word, and you don't put this together? How is that possible? Now, I don't know, know, I don't know the, the syntax of Jesus' voice in this place, but very clearly, he expects Nicodemus to understand. In other words, the knowledge of the Old Testament should have given him enough insight. Otherwise, Jesus would have never made that statement. He should have had all the insight he needed. Jesus knows the Old Testament is enough. It's very sad to me personally, and please take this the right way. It's very sad to me personally when someone's preconceived ideas about who God is gets in the way of them really seeing God. And you have that in Nicodemus' life. He's got preconceived ideas that he arrived at through the Old Testament that God was a God of rules and systems and sacrifices, and there's no way to have a relationship with him. And Jesus is there to tell him completely differently And it's obscured Nicodemus' understanding of God. That's why I say what you believe about God really determines what you do. Go with me on to verse 11. Jesus responds again the same way, amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? From this point forward, it's a one-way conversation, and we're going to move through it fairly quickly. Nicodemus drops out of the conversation. Jesus begins to take him to school and educate him. It's one-way dialogue. Here's my observation. Nicodemus' real problem is not a lack of revelation. It's not a lack of theology or a lack of information. He has just heard things that Moses never heard. Joshua, Daniel, Jonah, Ezekiel. He's heard things from the mouth of God himself. He's got all the information he needs. And Jesus says, your problem is, you don't accept it. You don't receive it. The real problem comes from verse 11. He says, you do not accept our testimony. Now, he has just heard The most beautiful example of the palingenesia anyone could ever want to hear. And he's struggling to believe with what Jesus just said. He's like many people in church who have grown up in church since they were children and have heard this over and over and over again, but it's never become real to them. And the palingenesia has never rested on them because they're going through the function, but never new life in Christ to see that Jesus completely obliterates all sin and can give you a brand new beginning. Now, just like is true today in 2013, Nicodemus is responsible to do something with this information because our God is a God of opportunity. And when God presents opportunity, you've got to act You've got to seize the opportunity that he presents. Even those who have never heard are responsible. If you don't believe me, read Romans chapter 1 later today when you get a chance. And if you don't own a Bible, take one of those pew Bibles with you when you leave today. Our gift to you, we want you to understand God's word. Take the Bible with you, read Romans chapter 1, and you'll see that God says, Everyone's going to be accountable before me, and they will be without excuse. So before Jesus lets Nicodemus go, he clarifies something for him. He said, I've just told you earthly things and you can't accept what I told you. I'm not gonna tell you about heavenly things. Remember he came in asking about miracles, heavenly things? Jesus is saying, you can't even accept the basics. I'm not gonna fill you in on the magnificent things of God. You know what that tells me about you and your relationship with your friends? You have individuals in your life who can't grasp the things of heaven the things about God and God's Word is probably because they're not willing to receive the basics first. That's what Jesus ran into with this guy. Is the implication is his refusal to believe has resulted in an inability to comprehend the truth. So don't be surprised when your friends who aren't following Jesus can't really figure this out. The Holy Spirit isn't dwelling them yet. Well, you keep talking to them and helping them to understand God's word and they'll come to a place where they can understand it if they receive Jesus. Now I see two sides to Nicodemus. I see the intellectual side. This, this one who comes to Jesus and acknowledges, you're, you're a great man. You're, you're a rabbi. and You're from God. Right? Look at the miracles that you do. So, he's investigated Jesus. He's watched him. Yet, when he's told what he needs to do to enter into the kingdom, the intellectual side gives way to the self reliant nature because he does not want to admit that he's a sinner in need of a Savior. He's just not willing to go to that point. That tells me that we can be very close to becoming so self absorbed absorbed, that we think we can do enough of the right things that God's going to like us. God likes you a lot. He loves you. He died for you. You you don't have to get him to like you. You have to get to the point where you recognize he died for you, and he will wipe away all your sins. Uh, Here's just a question for you to ponder. How good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? What are you going to do that's good enough to make him accept you when it comes to Judgment Day if you can't stand in the blood of Jesus Christ? This is the God who presents opportunity. So he's just kind of laid it out there for Nicodemus. In, in other words, saying, what you believe about me determines what you do next, Nicodemus. So I'm, I'm going to just move right on past verses 13, 14, and 15 because I want to get to the heart of this and just end with verse 16. Because God has presented an opportunity and Jesus is going to school the teacher of Israel. Now, In verses 13, 14, and 15, it, it literally says... No one has ascended into heaven, meaning you and I are confined to space and time. We can't leave this planet. Jesus is saying, I have been to heaven. I have come to earth. It is possible for me to explain this to you. I'm the only one with the true knowledge of heaven. I'm the one who descended, so therefore I know what it is. But here we come into verse 16. And I promise you this morning, if you were raised in church, You think you know John 3.16, right? Were were you taught it as a child? Come on. Were you taught it as a child? I know you were. If you haven't been, I know that you've seen it on the end of football zones, end zones, right? People holding up the big white cards. 3.16, somebody's waving it across. Other people are looking at it and saying, what is that 3.16 thing? John 3.16, spoken by God himself the most vast, incomprehensible, inconceivable, massive statement. Look at it this way. For God so loves you, Nicodemus, that he sent me. God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not but have everlasting life. See, for us in church today in 2013, it just kind of flows off our lips. We know it so well. Learn this verse over and over and over and You're raised with it. Can you imagine what a shock this was to a first century Jew who's a Pharisee, who's a member of the Sanhedrin, who's the teacher of Israel? What? You're going to save the Gentiles and the Samaritans? The whole world? Why? Just by believing, can you imagine how hard that was to hear? But it just flows off from the lips of God. So vast, so wonderful, so incomprehensible. There's no words capable of uttering anything close to this. Do you know when Paul came to this passage... He said, I got, I got no words. I got nothing. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen. This is, this is his statement. He, he literally says in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In the Greek, that word indescribable, it means I got nothing. There's no words for this. You know what I got? I got people who were redeemed walking into a baptism tank today. Who are witnesses to the transformation of what Christ has done? Because we've got no words. The Father gave His only begotten Son, the one who has existed from all eternity. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. In other words, He wasn't born into this earth, He's always existed. And He is the one who's bringing redemption as a sacrifice for sinners. Can you imagine anything grander in the entire world? The supreme manifestation of his love. And it's so significant that Jesus just lets it roll off his tongue. Whoever believes this, they're the ones who get eternal life. They're the ones who will be in the kingdom of God. And not one of the ways, the only way, Verse 17 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. That, that's code for when Jesus came the first time, He didn't come to judge, but He's coming back the second time, and when He comes, He's coming as the judge. But we're not going to camp there today. Let's go on to verse 18, because Jesus Himself has said, I'm here for the entire world, and there's only one way. And to those who come, Jesus gives a spectacular promise. I'm here to tell you this morning, this promise that you're about to see in verse 18 is for you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Look with me at this verse up on the screen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Can you imagine a greater verse in all the Bible? I'm camping on that one. When I stand before Jesus one day and he says, Mark, why are you here? I'm saying, because I am not condemned because of what you did before me. That's the same that's true for you. We are not condemned because of what Jesus Christ did. If you believe, I want you to see the New American Standard Version of this. It says this He who believes is not judged. How does most of the world view God as the judge? The judge is coming. I'm told, according to God's word, that I am not judged from the mouth of God. Is Jesus God? Yeah, Jesus is God, and God just said, I'm promising you, you will not be judged. Would you say that with me this morning? One, two, three. I will not be judged. That's the truth of God's word. That's what we're celebrating in baptism. So, church, when you pray, you present yourself to God as those who are alive in Christ. When you come before the Father, I am your own. I am your child. I am not judged. My scripture says this in Romans 8.1, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Matter of fact, if you go a step further into verse 33, look at this argument. It says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ Jesus. He is is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised for you. See, you're on the winning team. And it's only by trusting in Jesus. Jesus stated this truth both positively and negatively to Nicodemus. On the positive side, he said, Nicodemus, you believe in me. You're not going to be judged. But here's the negative side. You don't believe, you're judged already. You're dead. You're dead in your sins. The sentence hasn't been carried out yet. But you're dead as a doornail. So you want to present yourself as one is alive to God? You believe in Jesus Christ. Now, Scripture tells us that even the demons believe and shudder. So there's something different about this kind of belief. This means life transformation, following Jesus, following His Word. Why? Because there is only one way to the Father. According to Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. According to the authority of God's Word, I stand before you this morning saying, if you got your hope in Buddha, If you've got your hope in Muhammad, if you have your hope in Hinduism, you're on the wrong track. God's word says there is only one way and it's the name above every name that has been given among men by which you must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can transform you into more than you could ever possibly hope or dream. Because all those other systems I just mentioned are about works, about being good enough, doing things the right way. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're just one of those that doesn't work for you. A system of works will not allow you to stand before me. It's only through my righteousness. Now, if a man like Nicodemus is not good enough for the kingdom of God, who is? I am. If you're redeemed by Jesus, you are too. And our brothers and sisters who are about to climb into the tank, they are too. Why? because of Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while Mark Kring was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. Can you say that's true of you today? If not, this is your moment of opportunity. God presents opportunities. I did this in the Saturday night service, and I did this in the 9.15 service, so hold on to your bloomers. If you're feeling like this is your moment, and you want to be baptized because you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you identify with Jesus Christ, if you want to come up and talk to me during the baptisms, I will take these clothes and walk into the tank with you. If you've never been baptized before and you want to identify with Jesus Christ in that way, I'll take you up on that. I want you to understand that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and if you have been baptized, the story that you've just heard and you know to be true should embolden you to the point where you're telling all of your friends, all of your neighbors, all of your coworkers, We're watching God pour out His power upon this church because we're becoming bolder and bolder and bolder and talking about the things we know to be true. Because when God reveals who He is, His activity... In that moment, that is when you respond. Is this your moment of opportunity? Maybe you've never professed Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you've always wanted to. Or perhaps today, it's just become clear to you for the first time. I'm going to pray for you right now. And if through this prayer you feel bold enough to come and talk, just understand I am just a warm, cuddly teddy bear, okay? Don't be afraid. Ask my wife, okay? I'm very friendly. And see, the reason I say that is people elevate pastors and put them on pillars and say, I can't go talk to him. That's not true. I'm just like you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I know what salvation is. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. So let's pray together, church. Let's pray about what God's up to right now as we celebrate baptism together. Father, we're about to look at the evidence of life transformation. People who have stories to tell people who know what it is to have new life in Jesus Christ. I pray for those today who do not know you yet, who are not in relationship with you, and yet they feel the pressing of the Holy Spirit upon them right now and they can't even begin to explain it. There's a sense overwhelming them. Father, I ask that in your gentle way, in the way that only you can do, that you would woo them, that you would draw them to yourself. Father, please don't let this moment escape. I know that it is your desire that none would perish, but all would come to eternal life. Make that plain, Father. God, I ask for those who are questioning whether or not they should be baptized, that you would work on their heart, and if not in this service, perhaps in a future one coming up, God, that you would give them that sense of conviction to stand before a crowd and say, I belong to Jesus. Father, the last thing I ask for is for our church for those who name the name of Christ, that we would be willing to represent, that we would be willing to stand in our neighborhood and in our community and in our schools and in our places of business and have those conversations. To talk, God talk, to talk about what we know to be true. And when we fail and when we fall short of our words, may your Holy Spirit give us the words to say. God, I ask for boldness for your church. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.